You're listening to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. Thanks to our friends at Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting Faith and Family. Find out more about them on our website, kfuo.org. Look for the CUW logo in the sponsor section. For St. Louisans, the name... Reverend Larry Rice is a familiar name, at least it was in the 80s and 90s, due to his work of establishing an outreach and service to the homeless of St. Louis. Reverend Larry Rice's notoriety diminished somewhat during the early 2000s, but his name has made local news again just a few weeks ago when he was no longer able to avoid the efforts of City Hall and local residents to shut down the shelter. The Reverend Travis Scholl is managing editor of the of theological publications for Concordia Seminary in St. Louis and also author of the recent Faith Perspectives column in St. Louis Post-Dispatch, What Shall We Do with Larry Rice Now? Reverend Scholl, welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you, Andy. Good to be here. Glad to have you with me today and as a fellow St. Louisan, I'm sure that name, uh, the, the Reverend Larry Rice, is a familiar name for you as you were uh, writing this uh, this Faith Perspectives column for the Post. Uh, what do you remember about uh, Larry Rice from your childhood? Well, you know, it is uh, interesting because I can't remember those days of, um, you know, flipping across the dial and you'd hit Channel 24 here in St. Louis and that would always get you uh, front and center to uh, Larry Rice's ministry. And and so, you know, I can remember watching the old reruns that uh, – channel 24 would play that nobody else played Mm -hmm. and 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 i remember vividly seeing larry rice in front of that podium in the chapel in his outreach center and he would be uh i guess you could say talking head sort of thing but he would also be preaching and and leading worship and and um as I mentioned in my article, I can remember him, you know, growing up in the 80s as the guy who was wearing the, you know, 1970s style polyester suits with the really wide ties that nobody wore anymore <laughs> and and thinking, hmm, this is an interesting, interesting person um, to uh, to see on TV. How do you think he was viewed by uh, many in St. Louis? You know, how do you think they regarded him? You know, that's a good question, Andy. I do think, especially back in those days, I do think most people saw him as a person who was earnestly living out his faith and doing something that uh, that the city needed to be done in terms of serving especially the homeless um, and doing something that, that, quite frankly, you know, a lot of us didn't want to have to do. And so, and so we did see it as, uh, I think a lot of St. Louisans saw his work as, boy, I'm glad he's doing it, uh, because I don't think I'd want to. And, and I do think, you know, especially in his, in his, I guess you'd say, heyday, I think a lot of people viewed it that way. Do you think we're we're even frank enough with ourselves to say the, even that much to say, I'm thankful he's doing it because I don't want to do that work. You know, I think that's a great point, Andy. And and um, I hadn't necessarily thought about it that way. But yeah, I I would imagine there. You know, we aren't uh, on it. And I, I would point that finger at myself too. That um, we just as soon, you know, uh, not drive past that corner of downtown St. Louis and sort of just put it out of our minds. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think you're right, Andy. I think that's a great point that um, even to go so far as to say, 
that's not work I want to do. But even to just sort of wish it away um, is is probably a perspective that that a lot of people take. Well, paint a picture for us. What is the work that that Larry Rice has done in St. Louis? What are some of the the accomplishments that that we've seen through the years that right. that have made a difference for? many in St. Louis. Well, I, you know, I think aside from the people that he's actually, you know, physically served in his shelter, I do think uh, we can, I do think there's a lot of issues around homelessness and, and we could probably extend that into just issues of just general poverty in the St. Louis metropolitan area that we would not be talking about except that Larry Rice raised up those issues and said, we need to do something about this. Now, I think any any large city obviously has issues of homelessness and poverty that they have to address. But I think in particular here in St. Louis, you know, I can recall growing up and obviously as a kid, you're, you have a pretty limited awareness, but I don't recall anybody else seeing anybody else on TV or hearing in the news, anybody else who talked about the issues of homelessness as sort of consistently and as um, uh, uh, vehemently, maybe we could say, as as Larry Rice did. And so I think in a lot of ways, uh, the fact that um, St. Louis has an awareness of all of the issues around homelessness and poverty in St. Louis owes a lot to the decades, frankly, that that Larry Rice has spent uh, working in the issue. And not only did he bring attention to the issue and the needs of St. Louis by by providing the uh, the homeless shelter and a number of other outreach services in St. Louis, but as you pointed out, developing this this entire broadcast system, this this broadcast network with you know Channel Twenty Four KNLC here in St. Louis. He also built a whole network of not only television, but also radio uh, network as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that he went about that, when you think about building an, uh, a network like that, is that it requires a, a, a pretty large number of staff to to keep the equipment running and, and to keep everything uh, operating and, and to meet you know the regulations of the FCC in order to, uh, you know, to to just to, to maintain a, a regular broadcast. Right, right. How did he do that? He didn't go out and hire all of the, you know, union uh, employees, you know, union workers um, for that industry. Right. He didn't. How did he do that? He used that as a way to try to break that, that, that poverty and homelessness cycle. Right, right. Yeah, and, you know, I think uh, nobody ever turned to Channel 24 and thought, whoa, this is state-of-the-art broadcasting, <laughs> you know, but... Uh, the loud but hums was, and things like that on the right. on the mic, and yeah, yep. right. Yep, and the, uh, you know, the person on the little Wurlitzer organ, you know, uh, it, but, you know, you're right in the sense of he used, um, well, used isn't the wrong word, but he raised up people who he was serving in, his outreach ministry and gave them opportunities. And I, you know, that's something that uh, he has continued into the 2000s with the 
things he has tried to do with uh, renewable energy, you know, trying to train some of uh, the people he serves to be able to put in solar panels and do stuff like that. And and in that sense, you know, uh, you have to sort of admire his entrepreneurialism that he's been doing these things. And, you know, uh, Andy, you may have a different perspective on this than I do, and I'm sure other people have other perspectives. I have never gotten the sense that Larry Rice has done anything that he has done to make himself rich or to, you know, turn himself into a huge celebrity. Um, I, I, you know, he does, he can sort of grandstand on things uh, in ways that, you know, make him sort of a celebrity in the St. Louis area, but, but he certainly hasn't, you know, uh, built himself a home in town and country or any of the wealthy wealthy neighborhoods he he really has walked the talk and in that sense you do have to sort of admire how um he has built up this this network and this um large uh organization or sort of uh family of organizations to do the work that that he feels needs to be done Right, I don't. I, I, I obviously I've not done a full investigation, oh, but right, I, I don't. Right. Yeah, neither have I. I don't. I, I don't see evidence of him having a private jet and and <laughs> flying himself all over the the country. Not that there's anything wrong with having a private jet to do your work, but right. you know, he's he, as you said, he's he's walking the talk in that sense that, uh, well, I think you pointed it out in the 80s when you saw how he was dressing. It wasn't with all the latest, trendiest clothes either. Right, right. It, it wasn't that, so it, it wasn't that he was trying to uh, to keep up with the Joneses. His focus mm-hmm. was on uh, caring for and serving his neighbor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's always been my sense, and that, that's sort of what makes it difficult to, you know, as much as he has now come under, uh, in, in a lot of cases, valid critique for, you know, how he's maintained his shelter and, and the problems that have gone on around, you know, just on the block, the city block around his shelter, um, as much as those things have come under valid critique and, and that he honestly, if he wants to continue his ministry, I think he needs to attend to. It's sort of hard to to make those critiques and then say, well, you know, uh, we should do something else when there isn't really a long line, you know, after Larry Rice of people who are willing to uh, step into that gap. What do you think has been the demise of his outreach, his, his homeless shelter? Yeah, you know, I, that... As you said, I haven't done the full investigation either, but I think any time when, you know, you have a um, a facility, and I, I do think a lot of it has been or centered around the facility itself uh, that he runs downtown, uh, anytime you have something where you're permitted for about 30 uh, people to shelter and your housing 150 to 200, you're going to start running into issues. And so I know I've heard, you know, a lot of the horror stories about, you know, the bed bugs and, and, um, it, uh, for many homeless people, it being sort of the shelter of last resort because of the dangers there. And, and I think aside from the, the facility issues, you know, there, 
since the, especially after 2000, I think obviously the other big thing that has happened is that the neighborhood uh, itself, just to the east of, of Larry Rice's building, has changed and, to use the fancy word, has gentrified. And so there's a lot of residents there who weren't there 20 years ago who, um, you know, and I don't want to cast dispersions. They they have honest concerns about their neighborhood and being able to walk freely and not not be worried uh, about things happening in their neighborhood. Uh, uh, some of that can be sort of um, prideful, I guess, but I, I can't really fault them for that. So between that then that changing neighborhood, I think, changed Larry Rice's relationship to City Hall. And, and obviously, anytime that you sort of start picking fights with a mayor who had been in office for quite a while, Francis Slay, who now has recently uh, retired from office, but um, a popular mayor, uh, anytime you start picking fights there, then you're going to start running into trouble. So I, I, I think all of those things sort of contributed to sort of bring all of this to a head. Why are we sometimes indifferent toward the work of people like Larry Rice and the those he serves? Well, it's it's uh, it's dirty work. First of all, I mean, this is uh, the kind of work that that you really have to be willing to uh, walk a mile in a person's shoes that you don't really want to. And I think that's you know uh, where you really do have to admire what. Larry Rice has done, and so I think first of all, that's it's it's work that isn't uh, very glorifying work, and I think also it it's just hard work. You know, uh, I use the cliche of of giving a man a fish and he eats for a day, teach a man to fish and he eats for a lifetime. In in my column, and I do really think that you know if anybody had solved the problem of homelessness uh, up until this point in human history, we'd all be reading their best-selling book and, and doing uh, what they said to be doing. Um, but nobody's figured that one out. And, you know, uh, you know, even Jesus' wisdom that the poor will always be with you uh, is not something that, that um, we take any, any joy in, but that we see as a calling that we always have to be uh, serving our neighbor, and and that's not easy work. It's not easy to um, not just you know give give a homeless person the the dime or the dollar bill when they uh, approach us on the sidewalk, but actually to do those things that can help sort of raise them up and and put them in a better position that they uh, can find a home and can find. Uh, good work and and be in a stable situation, and at least um, you know in our current context, so much of that also means dealing with issues of mental illness and and drug addiction and and a whole lot of things that we just really don't like to uh, have to deal with. One of the one of the statements from your article, as we continue that thought, that that really stood out for me. And I think perhaps for many other readers that made us stop and think about our oneself and how we consider this mercy work, 
uh, was this, this statement. So even as I make the argument, I have to confess I feel a twinge of guilt in the pit of my stomach. Something about it feels a little too much like a rationalization because I still know that even if he is doing his work in a way that may be outmoded, misguided, or even harmful, Rice is doing the work that I don't want to do. Yeah. That <laughs> he's doing the work... It, even if I think he's doing a poor job or he's going about it in a way that I wouldn't go about it, at least he's doing the work that I am not willing to do. I'm not willing to face the reality myself and and do any of the work, or I'm not gifted enough to do that kind of work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just human nature, you know. Um, that's that's the, uh, the old Adam at work within me, and... You know, it's. I think no matter what the issue is, it's always easier to be the uh, proverbial Monday morning quarterback after the fact and say, "Oh, well, this these are all the things that uh, he's doing wrong." Uh, but unless I've I've sort of punched the clock mm-hmm. and done something myself, it it does seem. There is, I think, sort of underneath it, a little bit something disingenuous about that. And, and you know, I think that's what has been, you know, when the announcement was made, which is what really prompted uh, my column, the announcement was made that he was finally going to shut down his outreach center. That's That's really the conflict that I felt as a person who had, these long memories of, you know, Larry Rice being the person back in the day, the one person who was sort of attending to this problem of homelessness, uh, having all these long memories and then thinking, well, sure, I, I read the, the uh, newspaper articles about everything that was going wrong with his outreach center, but it still didn't make me, you know, go down to the soup kitchen, um, uh, you know, down at Trinity Soulard or, or wherever to, to help out. And, and so there is something about that, that, that I need to look inside myself a little bit and, and deal, deal with, uh, this tension that I'm feeling inside my, and, and, you know, the, the word for it honestly is guilt, the guilt that I feel. If the law or guilt is our motivation, does that make a difference in the outcome? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think for us as Christians, we have to ultimately say there's there's really only one place we can take that guilt that uh, that is truly going to, to uh, make my heart whole again. And so I do think, you know, in one sense, and... Um, I had, you know, in the column itself, uh, as I look back on it, you know, I didn't really make this turn in the column. Had it been a sermon instead of a column, I would have made this turn. You know, if I would be doing um, those things simply because I, I, I was trying to relieve my sense of guilt, I don't really think it could be something that I could feel really uh, good about, say, if I went to the soup kitchen simply because I felt guilty. But as a Christian, if I do take that guilt to the cross and hear 
the word of, of forgiveness, that word of good news, then I think what God is able to do with me is to turn me toward my neighbor in a way that truly would make a difference, or maybe a better way to put it, that, that God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, can work through me in a way to truly make a, a lasting difference in my service to my neighbor. And, and you know, obviously for us as Christians, that's, that's what we know um, and can uh, trust and can have faith in. Um, but, uh, but again, you know, in the context of a social issue, how that, how that all plays out. And, you know, I don't, you know, since you asked the question, I, I genuinely, I honestly, I've never met Larry Rice and I don't know, you know, in his heart of hearts, you know, what motivates him. I do, I, I have no reason to question his, his faith, his Christian faith, but, um, but, you know, I wonder too, you know, um, how he sort of, of, uh, works that out in his own life and ministry might be a, an interesting question if I would ever have a chance to ask him too. And interesting, even though Larry comes from a different confession, uh, I still have a, something in common with him, Mm -hmm. uh, just, uh, you know, reviewing his biography, Larry studied at Concordia College in Texas and Concordia Senior College in Fort Wayne. So he was, in a sense, in the Concordia system, as as some of us in the LCMS refer to it, you know, to to attend uh, one of the Concordias and and to study at them. Now, he he went on, uh, uh, he was ordained through Calvary Temple in Fort Wayne, which is another church body altogether. Um, and you mentioned in your article that there were uh, there was urban legend that he had studied at Concordia Seminary at one time, but uh, but had moved on, dropped out of seminary uh, to move on and do uh, to get right into work. Right, right, yeah, and that's really the extent of that story that I know. Um, it might be interesting, you know. I don't know if uh, Concordia Historical Institute or maybe some of the. Uh, people who are still alive from back then would have more to know about that. Um, and, and really too, to know, cause uh, you know, when, uh, when he did, it, if he did come to Concordia seminary and then drop out, uh, or however, however that all played out, he obviously ended up in a different, um, church tradition, different theological tradition. Um, but that does, you know, I think for, St. Louis Lutherans who were around during that time and, and, um, the conflicts and tensions and, and things that were happening, um, not only in the Lutheran church, but in American Christianity, um, that, that made it hit closer to home, you know, this sense that, um, he was sort of done talking theology. He wanted to do ministry and, and I think that's a, something that a lot of us as Christians feel. We feel that tension. Um, but I think uh, for us as Lutherans, we do the thinking part a little more easily. We spend, and and there's a lot of treasures to be grateful for uh, with our theological tradition. Um, but he he sort of comes to represent that other side that says, you know, you can talk theology 
uh, till the cows come home. But at a certain point, the rubber's got to meet the road, you know, to mix my mix my metaphors rather poorly. <laughs> <there>. <laughs> And I would say, I would think today, many uh, Lutherans, many LCMS Lutherans would would say that 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 both are important. That yeah. that acts of mercy are really uh, of no value if there isn't a, a good foundation in the Word, a good good foundation in uh, if we, we call it theology or study of the Word. Yeah. Um, the, then those acts of mercy are are really meaningless if if there's no grounding not saying that 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 Larry Rice didn't have any uh any theological or or, or biblical education or training but uh, but I think that that to say that that one to pit them against the other that that uh theology or the study of God's word and and service to the neighbor are inseparable uh, I think is well it's a false dichotomy to 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 pit them against one another Yes, by all means. And I, I think that's, for me as, you know, as an adult now, uh, that's what I love about the Lutheran tradition is is that balance between, you know, theology and study and, you know, mercy, compassion, action, is that there's, there's they both feed into the other. And, you know, I can remember uh, even as a, as a kid uh, when I would hear... Uh, Reverend Rice on TV, I can even remember thinking, you know, there's some things about what he's saying that just don't seem quite right, (laughs) you know, and I think that, of course, owes a lot to the, um, the, the teaching and the catechesis that I was receiving from in my own church growing up and from my parents. And so I'm incredibly grateful for that. But it it was always interesting uh, to, to sort of hear him on TV and think, hmm, something about this doesn't seem um, uh, that it's all completely thought through. And and so for me now, I, you know, and, and as a Lutheran pastor myself, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for the way Lutherans down, you know, well, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year for 500 years have found ways to, to fi- strike this balance between our, our theology and our, our ministry of mercy. It's, it's a beautiful thing when, at its best. My guest today, the Reverend Travis Scholl, Managing Editor of Theological Publications for Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, and also author of the recent article in the St. Louis, uh, Louis Post-Dispatch uh, Faith Perspectives column, what shall we do with Larry Rice now? Travis, thanks so much for being my guest today on Faith and Family. I'm always a pleasure, Andy. Thank you. Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu.
This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. Do you realize abortion is legal in America throughout pregnancy? Southwestern Women's Options, an abortion mill in Albuquerque, New Mexico, is the late-term abortion capital of the nation. Recently, an undercover phone conversation was made public of a woman eight months pregnant, wanting a late-term abortion because the baby had Down syndrome. Staffer at the mill indicated it was no problem, and if she qualified for Medicaid, state taxpayers would foot the entire bill of $15,500. Only a few countries allow abortion throughout pregnancy. The U.S. is in the company of the likes of China, North Korea, and Vietnam. You can listen to the call yourself. Visit lifeissues.org and click on the microphone icon. Please pray the killing ends. Like us on Facebook at Life Issues and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. So what are you doing the last week of July? How about spending it with a bunch of fellow Lutherans at the 2017 Institute for Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music on the lovely campus of Concordia University, Chicago. You'll be singing, praying, learning, loving, and growing together in the Lord. The Institute is for everyone who's passionate about worship. The theme this year is the just live by faith. Make it plain in sermon, service, song. There'll be a hymn festival, concert by National Lutheran Choir, insightful keynotes by David Peterson, William Swirla, and Kevin Hildebrandt, tons of workshops covering the gamut of worship, and you get to hear Daniel Gard give us the goods on the book of Habakkuk. Yeah, you want to be there. July 25th through 28th. You'll be so glad you did. Register today at www.lcms.org slash worship institute. Our Give Now button at kfuo.org is available 24 hours a day. Also, you can send email to gifts at kfuo.org and ask for information about our various giving opportunities. To call and talk to someone today, contact Mary at 314-996-1518 or Mark Hawkinson at 314-996-1520. Support the mission of Worldwide KFUO and help us reach the world with the gospel. Hi, this is Joni Harwell, inviting you to Christian Friends of New Americans' third annual 5K Run and Fun Walk on Saturday, May 6th at Concordia Seminary. The funds from this event will help CFNA's ministries to new refugees and Americans. Come and join us for some fun. Register online cfna-stl.org slash walk or call 314-517-8513. Listening to Faith and Family, I'm Sarah Golseth. For our Lutheran seminaries around the world, especially those whose students' native language is not English, how is that curriculum developed? We get to learn a little bit about someone who does not only that, but task, but uh, a myriad of other things in the mission field. With me in studio today is Deaconess Gail Ludvigson, who serves as a career missionary in the Dominican Republic. Welcome, Gail. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about uh, your background. Um, your schooling, how you how you decided to become a, a missionary, all of that. Okay, well, um, I'm 66 years old, so I don't think you have a program that's long enough for me to cover <laughs> my entire background. So I'll just give the you highlights. the highlights. Yeah. Uh, I went to seminary, and I started seminary in 2009. Before that, I'd spent about 10 years in the tech industry doing 
um, curriculum design, um, editing, writing, teaching. Um, I worked for Microsoft and T-Mobile, um, wrote curriculum for uh, call center representatives for T-Mobile, and did some work with um, different products at Microsoft, doing um, writing user interface text, doing editing. I also did some training. Uh, I built a help system for a cell company that no longer exists. So I did a lot of tech stuff that was writing related. And then um, uh, the contract started to become rarer because the uh, recession happened. So my pastor mm-hmm. and I talked about it, and he suggested I consider the seminary. And so I went in 2009 and uh, finished, graduated in 2012, but there was uh, no placement for me. So I applied and um, did another year uh, for an advanced degree, which is known as a um, Master's of Sacred Theology, the STM. Um, and I'm still working on my thesis for that right now. And when I finally did receive an offer, it was to serve as a missionary with the team that is based in the Dominican Republic. The uh, call papers, uh, my responsibilities were supposed to be to design uh, a deaconess training curriculum for the region and as needed to do other duties, including teaching classes. Sure, sure. That's that's a bit of a switch from, from the tech field into the into a deaconess field. How, how did that kind of happen? Well, my pastor and I talked about vocation a number of times, and I wasn't sure. I was never had never had any sense of inner call to be a church worker. Mm-hmm. His recommendation was because uh, I like theology that the deaconess position has a broad job description, so I would have a variety mm-hmm. of things that I could do, and it would give me an opportunity to serve. Um, and of course, I would have a chance to go and study theology at the seminary. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like a good idea. He had explained his own discovery of vocation was pretty much okay, Lord, I'm going to go to the seminary, and as you open doors, I will walk through them, and if you don't open them, I won't go through them, and so we'll just see what you make of this, and that's pretty much what I ended up doing. People often, I mean, it's often, the story's often told by a person who goes in the mission field that they have an inner call or an inner drive to serve. I never had that. Some of us don't. So in my case, what I ended up doing was thinking about what gifts I had, what uh things I like to do, what things give me energy, but what gifts I had that would be useful in church work. And one of my gifts is language, Mm -hmm. learning languages easily. I speak German fluently. I've learned French. I had Slovak when I was in Slovakia. So, um, and I learned Korean. So it's something that is an odd gift that you can't, it looks like it would be a good thing to use in a field like in foreign missions. So when that opportunity came, I thought, well, Maybe this is what I'm supposed to do is, and the course that I did write, I wrote in Spanish. Mm. I didn't write it in English. So I had to learn enough Spanish to be able to write a course on the letters of Paul. So that's a lot. That's, that's a significant amount of, uh, amount of the language too, to be able to do that in, in theological terms, because those terms aren't, aren't the terms that you're going to necessarily learn in a conversational course. Absolutely. That's right. And that was, that was one of the things I pushed. We, we, when we, before we go on the field, we are given a, um, classes with uh, a, a Spanish instructor in the United States while we're doing our support raising. And one of the things that I pushed him very hard on was, um, you know, it's really nice to know the tourist Spanish, but I'm going to be working in a church and I kind of need to know religious Spanish. So sure. could you like, could you, because there's two words for prayer, rezar y orar. Orar mm-hmm. is the common one, mm-hmm. which you probably, you can sort of hear the Latin in there, oratio, sure. orar. Rezar is to recite the rosary. Oh. 
you, if you put it in a Google Translator, it's going to give you both, and I ain't going to tell you that. So I said, please, teach me the one I need. <laughs> that, that's a significant yeah, difference, Yeah, it's a pretty big difference, yeah. yeah. And they are, they, they, th- those really aren't synonyms if you think about it. Right. So it's useful to know the right word for the situation. Sure. So I pushed him very hard to give, us relig- give me religious Spanish because, you know, it's interesting when you get to the field and they give you a class, the classes that we were getting were Berlitz. And unfortunately, Berlitz is focused on business people. So I actually had a class on how to take a train. There are no trains in the Dominican Republic. <laughs> so my complaint to the teacher was, could you teach me some vocabulary I'm actually going to use? <laughs> so we, so we, I mean, she does, she did add on things, but she had to use the curriculum because she works for Berlitz. But it's like, they don't have a train in the Dominican Republic. They have them in Spain, mm-hmm. but they don't have them in the Dominican Republic. So I don't need to know how to take a train. Sure. No. <laughs> Sure. Well, there's there's um, language that's very specific to Lutheranism, too, in, yes. in terms of what it means. And yep. being able to explain that to somebody who doesn't understand those things can get complicated when, when you have that language barrier. Yep. Yep. So, And then, of course, the translation of the Bible there, the one that is in common use is like the King James Version. Mm-hmm. It's the RVR, which is the Reina Valera uh, Revisado, which is from 1960. And the language is a bit clunky for modern people. Um, it also has um, uh, a um, pronoun, um, a voice that's not used in common talk, mm-hmm. vosotros, yep. um, which they still use in Spain, but pretty much in Latin America is not used. It was dropped. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, there, a number of us are pushing for them to go to the Reina Valera Contemporanea because it eliminates that and makes it's more like the ESV. Mm. The RVR is more like the King James version. Mm-hmm. So it's easier for people who are not comfortable with um, their own language to use the RVC instead, which is the Spanish study Bible, by the way, the one that they have available that is analogous to our mm-hmm. Lutheran study Bible is RVC. Um, and there are other little quirks in there. For example, there is a word um, that appears 13 times in the RVR that was removed from the RVC, <laughs> and the word is ohala, which means perhaps. <laughs> but it actually is an example of the Arabic words that have gotten into Spanish. Oh, interesting. Because if you hear ohala, it's inch Allah, which is if God wills, if Allah wills. Sure. So they removed it from the Bible translation <laughs> when they did the RVC, which was good because if I remember correctly, a couple times that word is in Jesus' mouth. In mm-hmm. the old translation, mm-hmm. and I just really don't think it's terribly appropriate to have Jesus using a false god's name in an expression he's using. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons for the change. So we yeah. make these interesting things. If you see it written, you would not know mm-hmm. that's what it is. But if you listen carefully, you can hear their Arabic words throughout Spanish because there was a huge Arabic influence, Moorish influence in its history. Sure. So there's lots of them, but not all of them are things like oh hala. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> something that significant. So uh, becoming a missionary, that was, was that kind of a natural transition for you? Or was there, was there a lot of uh, uh, things you had to get used to as you transitioned into being a missionary? I've lived abroad before. I taught in Slovakia for a couple of years for a secular university. So the living abroad part wasn't the real adjustment. I would, for me, um, I've often said this, that it's God's sense of humor. The one place on earth I didn't want to go was the tropics, and that's where he sent me. 
Yes, God does. So that adjustment has been my problem is that heat. I'm I'm not a fan of the heat and I'm not a person who worships the sun. So I'm not a beach person either. And it's really difficult to get away from the heat there. Um, I live in Santiago, which is the second largest city in the Dominican Republic, and it is ringed by hills, so it's more of in a valley, so it's cooler. Mm-hmm. But uh, the rest of some of our missionaries are in Santo Domingo, the capital, and that's on the ocean. Mm-hmm. So it's humid and hot and, you know, whatever goes with it. They also get the great blessing of having the hurricanes pass by, mm-hmm. which they don't really do much to the center of the country. Right. But they do, you know, hit the coasts from time to time. So I'm in a good spot, all things considered. It's just the tropics don't do it for me it's you're hot all the time you know you're pretty much hot all the time and so that was my that's my adjustment i'm not sure i'll ever adjust to it you just learn to tolerate it pretty much Mm -hmm. um and there's air conditioning is it's well yeah um not really a luxury well um i'm renting a house and the normal thing is that your landlord basically collects the rent. That's all they do. So mm-hmm. if you need something in the house, you have to provide it. Oh, boy. Most of us will arrange for there to be fans, at least, in the ceiling to make it more comfortable. The house I'm in had a room air conditioner in the master bedroom, so I use that, but I don't use it all the time. And it doesn't go on the backup generator. Oh. So when there's no power, I do have the fans because they're on the backup generator. Mm-hmm. But the air conditioner will go out. Mm-hmm. So... You pray that it won't happen on a day when it's so hot that you wouldn't be able to sleep even with the fans on. Sure. Is that is that a, a normal thing for the, air, for the power to go out? Yes. Most developing nations, and the Dominican is no different, have overtaxed their power grid pretty substantially. So you have, some of them have, uh, I know that the electric company in the Dominican has regular brownouts, so they have scheduled ones. But there will also be times when the, the grid is stressed enough that, you know, it'll just go mm-hmm. in the middle of the night and then come back on later on. So it's a standard practice for you to get a backup generator for your home so that you have power for some things when there is no power off the grid. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a double batteried one, so my outlets and my fans work when the rest of the things are out. And that's a good thing because that means I can put in extra fans. (laughs) There you you go. Like, you know, standing fans if I need them. And for sleeping, that's really important. During Mm -hmm. the day, it's not quite so bad, but at night it is a problem. True, true. Now, talking about living in the Dominican, is there other foods you really enjoy, or or there's a um, the standard thing is um, their standard meal is what they call bandera, which is uh, the word for flag in Spanish, and it's red beans and rice, and then they'll add meat to it. Um, they eat that a great deal. I'm not a huge fan of two thirds of my plate being covered with white rice, so I don't eat quite as much of that. Um, and chicken is the preferred meat. And again, um, I don't just want to eat chicken. Mm -hmm. So I've had to learn to make some things and vegetables are hard to come by. Um, they import them. Uh, you can get some local vegetables, but you have to clean them really well. Mm -hmm. Um, because the water is not, you don't want to just rinse them with water. You want to make sure that they're disinfected. So, um, Having fresh vegetables is unusual. You can do it. It just requires a lot of effort to make sure you have them. And I miss that. Mm-hmm. I do like, there's a couple of desserts. There's one that's called um, Tres Leches, which is three milks. Ooh, yes, that's It's very sweet. And then the other one is um, Dulce de Leche. Mm-hmm. And these are two non-chocolate desserts I really like. 
<laughs> those are delicious. I, I I had those. And they're relatively simple to make. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Way back in high school when I had my Spanish classes, those those were two of the favorite things to make when we had food day in there Spanish class. <laughs> Does it, everybody loves dessert. You really can't. Yeah. Really and can't life is wrong. uncertain. You should eat dessert first anyway. Exactly. So. Right. Exactly. I, lo- <laughs> I like that. I like that. So um, you, you mentioned there's no trains in the Dominican. Is it cabbies or do you drive? Yeah, the, or? the traffic is an interesting. Well, again, you could probably get this from just about anyone who's in a place that's um, a, the, the wor- developing world. If there's a large urban center, you're always going to have a traffic issue. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me is that the Dominican really doesn't have any petroleum. They have to import all the gasoline. Oh, wow. So what you get is this odd hybrid. There are cabs that run on liquefied gas. Hmm. So you have a guy who has a cab. Uh, they, they're they called chauffeurs. Um, <laughs> that's the word for cab driver in the, in their Spanish. But they will they have a big tank in the in their trunk, and that's LP. Mm-hmm. And so they have uh, stations that sell both petroleum-based and um, uh, propane, mm-hmm. uh, liquefied gas. And so you have um, the cars run on both. Some of the cars run on both of those things. But there's a lot. In Santiago, it's the second largest city. There's a lot of traffic, and mm-hmm. it's a little hard to figure out. You know, because you don't you don't have gas, you know, you have petroleum. So how come you have so many cars? <laughs> and then how do people get around? Well, there's all the different levels. They do have buses in town. Um, they have you know the metropolitan buses, but they have between between state between cities. There's buses. There's a bus service. You have what they call conchos, which in the Dominican are very battered and beaten up taxi kind of cars that have had all of their padding removed that cram as many people in as they possibly can and they get charged by, they pay by the head so the guy makes more if he has a lot of people. Mm -hmm. These are guys who will take risks to get passengers. So you have to drive with that in mind. There are also motoconchos, which are motorcycles that take passengers. Sometimes you'll actually see a motorcycle with five people on it. Oh boy. Um, Sometimes you'll see the drivers have helmets. Sometimes they don't. There are also bicycles. There Occasionally you see animals because people ride horses in the countryside. They don't have vehicles, generally speaking. You have pedestrians. People cross wherever they want to in the street. So mm-hmm. it can be quite a confusing thing to drive. Mm-hmm. And I decided not to do that until I'd been there for a year mm-hmm. because I had enough work to do learning Spanish and getting used to the area and getting used to getting around and stuff that I decided, no, I'm not ready for a vehicle yet. Sure. Then when I got the vehicle, then it was fine. Now mm-hmm. I could, you know, I know how it works so I can do it. But it is, we had just recently, this past year, they had more rain than they'd had in 10 years. And it washed out a couple of highways. Oh, wow. So it's a little scary. Places you don't want to drive at night because there's no lights. Mm-hmm. There's no guardrails. And you would not know if there's a pedestrian or a car or a concho or a bicycle on the on the road because they don't have any reflective material on. So you just don't want to drive at night if you can help it in the places where it's collapsed into the hillside. So, yeah, <laughs> there were a couple of times that I, no, I don't want to drive there at night. I'll wait till the next day. Thank you very much. It's <laughs> quite the adventure. Yeah. So let's let's talk a bit about your your work at the seminary. You um, you help develop the curriculum for is it for the deaconess program? Yeah, there's a regional program to train deaconesses. The goal is to have them serve in mercy houses, and the mercy houses would either be co- connected to a congregation that exists or to an institution like a school. Uh, a school would be considered a mercy institution, or that they would be um, something like an orphanage, 
or a home for people with disabilities, that kind of thing. And so the goal is to, um, with the churches that we have partnerships with, is to train women to, to serve in those places. And, and to do that, we need to have some kind of course of study. Sure. And the first course has already been delivered with the exception of Venezuela. We had um, four countries who participated in that first course delivery, which were um, Mexico, Guatemala, Panama, and Venezuela. Um, they came for the rollout of the course in May of 2016, but and then we sent teachers to each country to teach the course there. The situation in Venezuela is very mm-hmm. dire, so we don't know how they're going to do the courses there because no one can go in to teach them. Right. So we haven't worked that out, but the other three countries have had the course taught, and it was an introduction to the Letters of St. Paul. Mm-hmm. So um, the next course is in in process. We're working on an outline, um, and the goal is to be a course about the church and the pastoral office and the deaconess office. So, But you asked about the seminary. Um, the focus of the mission right now is that um, is getting the seminary up and running. Okay, they're actually going to have students come in August. Okay, so they've had to ramp up really fast, and what that has done is push back our schedule a little bit. Because the goal originally was that we would have the second course ready and deliver it in the summer, but I don't think that's going to happen because all of the resources of the mission are focused on getting that seminary ready. Sure. Now the deaconesses are not studying in the seminary; they're not residential students. What we do is send instructors to the country. Okay. So we have people who teach the course in those countries. They travel there and teach them. Um, but the seminary is the umbrella organization over all of the programs, and that includes the Deaconess program. So eventually, we're going to work when we work, work on the accreditation of the seminary. The program itself will be part of that whole accreditation process. So that's a longer term goal. Um, but right now, um, a lot of resources are geared at making sure it's ready for the 15 students we expect in August. Okay. So is this seminary a, a new seminary? Yes. Um, they, it's called uh, Seminario Luterano El Reformador, which means Reformer Lutheran Seminary, and it's in the Dominican Republic in Palmar Riba. Um, we had uh, already had dormitory rooms, and we had been teaching classes in other locations, but because we knew we were going to have students, now they, they wanted to put in classroom space. So that's what we did, we've been doing since last February is construction to add classrooms. And then they need to probably add some more housing in the building. There's a building up on the hill, and that's where the dorms are. And the classrooms are on top, on a third floor of our K-6 through school in Palmar, the elementary school. Mm -hmm. Because it had enough solidity, it has a good foundation. So they said, well, this would go much faster and be less expensive. Just put another floor on the top and make those classrooms. So um, we have... Not all the faculty, but almost all the faculty are available. And they're going to teach in Spanish, obviously. This mm-hmm. is in the past, a lot of times people would travel and teach classes, and many times that was in translation. But that doesn't serve a, a region like this, which has Spanish everywhere. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be doing it in translation. So we've got people who have Spanish. And the same is true for the regional deaconess courses. There were courses taught in the past, but they were usually taught in translation. Mm-hmm. So we're not doing that anymore. We want to produce materials and teach the classes in the vernacular because the formation of the pastors and deaconesses will work much better that way. Sure, sure. Um, so we don't. I don't know what the scheduling is going to be, but I know that there's going to be a 
uh, a meeting and planning connected to the Deaconess program once we get some of the seminary stuff taken care of. Sure. So once the guys are here and they've started teaching them, then we're, the next thing we would do is work on structuring the, the regional program for the Deaconesses to make it work. Mm-hmm. So though we've had one class out, I don't know when the second class is going to roll out at so, this point. So do the the, st- the students that are coming to the seminary, are they just from the Dominican Republic no. or are these also regional? No, no they're... There was uh, Concordia Argentina um, in Buenos Aires was the uh, regional seminary. And there's a transition taking place now where the, some of the students that were studying there will be coming to the Dominican instead. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what's happened is this ramping up. So we've got one of the people who was a professor at the seminary in Argentina has um, is visiting and in the Dominican Republic with his family, and he's helping us do the planning for the seminary rollout. Sure, sure. Now, I understand you also work with um, individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Is that part of the work with the seminary, or is that a different thing? The Dominican Republic, uh, the, a little bit confusion here is this: the Dominican Republic houses the regional office, so we have some mm-hmm. of the regional responsibilities. The seminary is a regional responsibility. Uh, deaconess programs are regional. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, ministry to people with developmental disabilities is a local Dominican um, ministry. Mm-hmm. So each field has different needs, and as you get to know the field, so for example, perhaps in a place like Guatemala, you might have a need for elder care as mm-hmm. opposed to disabilities. When they began the Dominican Republic Lutheran Mission in 2007, the need that was identified was um, uh, for people who had um, developmental disabilities. Mm-hmm. And so we have um, a home that has um, a group of orphans who were removed from the orphanage in Santo Domingo and are being cared for by the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, it's a it's a population in the Dominican who, generally speaking, isn't very well served. Mm-hmm. So the church's opportunity was there. And we do have an, a, a ministry to them. The children who are in the home in Palmar Riva, which also, by the way, is where the seminary is, are members of the congregation. They have, um, they go to the school. They have been um, catechized, the ones who are old enough to be. And there are a couple of them who are, um, we're in the process, one of them has a, a job, but we're, for those who are capable of working, we've gotten them working opportunities. So the goal is to make them contributing members of society. Um, longer term, uh, there is some work going on in Santo Domingo at the psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. There are people with disabilities there, but there's also people who are mentally disturbed that they have been working with as well to try and improve the conditions for them. So this seems to be a particular ministry for our Dominican mission. Um, regionally, each field has different needs, and as you mm-hmm. get to know the field, you find that out. Um, what they're doing in Peru, for example, is something called Castillo Fuerte, mm-hmm. which is a um, sort of a drop-in center for at-risk youth. It's after school and during the day, and it provides activities and teaching for the kids. And there's several of them in Lima. And that's that's not for... There are children with disabilities, obviously, but the focus isn't specifically on them. And that right. was the need that was identified when they started the mission in Lima. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what they're going to find when they, when they look at some of the other places, but... Um, we're trying to make sure there's a mercy center that they've just finished um, constructing that's going to be part of training for deaconesses in the Dominican Republic. 
and they will be taught things like they if they're going to work in a school they need to learn pedagogy so mm-hmm. they have to learn some of the practical stuff as well sure and so each location hopefully once they've identified a need each country or each field is going to have something similar a place where people can train for that need along with getting their theological training. Sure. That's very important then mm-hmm. to be able to train people who, who know those needs very specifically mm-hmm. for the places yes. that they're going to be that yep. they're going to be serving. And I, I suspect that the training they're going to get is better than what they would have gotten if they'd just done a secular training. We have some people studying to be nurses in the Dominican, but to work for the church, actually these are more specialized skill sets. Mm-hmm. And to be a teacher even, the kind of teacher training that's available in the Dominican is not the same as what the church offers. And uh, as time passes, that might actually make a difference mm-hmm. uh, in what, whether they're able to find work. Yes. That was one of the reasons for identifying a need. So we have a place for the ladies to serve. Yes. You don't just train them and then just leave them you right. know, to figure out what to do. You want to make sure that you're actually meeting a local need because that's the history of the deaconess office. Right, right. That is very, very important. Mm-hmm. And we are all out of time. My guest today is Deaconess Gail Ludvigson, who serves as a career missionary in the Dominican Republic. To learn more about Gail's work and the missionary work being done in the Dominican Republic, you can go to lcms.org slash Ludvigson. And to see mission opportunities and to find out how you can serve, you can go to lcms.org slash service. Gail, thank you so much for being my guest today. My pleasure. Listen to Faith and Family Monday through Friday at this time. Faith and Family is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is needed for Faith and Family to continue. Our address is 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can contact us on the web and download Faith and Family at kfuo.org. Worldwide KFUO, on the air, online, and on demand.